Today's scripture is from Habakkuk chapter 2. I will take my stand at my watch watch post and station myself on the tower and look out and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall. And the beam from the woodwork will respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. And pour out your wrath and make them drunk, in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlain with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, what a great word to start out with, right, on Sunday? (laughs) Um, For some of you, that may have sounded like Shakespeare or worse. (laughs) And um, I just want to assure you this morning, there's something really important that we're going to learn. I made one major mistake this morning. I'm trying to preach from an iPad for the first time. So I just want to let you know, if I totally lose my um, train of thought, it's Mac's fault, not mine. Um, 
But let's just start. I'd like to start just praying. This is a tough word, um, and I feel the weight of it. So I'd like to just pray and ask God to speak to us this morning. Lord, we, we come before you um, aware that you are true. Lord, we come before you aware that your word is true, but we also come before you aware that we often are at a loss to understand and to know what to do. Lord, we come before you with heavy hearts as we look at the evil in our world, as we look at things around us that we just do not understand, and your answers are not easy. Your answers are not easy, Lord, but we pray that this morning you would fill us with the hope that you filled your prophets with. You'd fill us with the hope that you filled your apostles with. Fill us with the hope, Lord, of your justice and of you coming, and I pray that you would help humble us, Lord, so that we can accept that hope and not hold on to anything else. Pray that you would speak through me this morning, Lord, in your name, amen. So last week, we started a series on the book of Habakkuk, right? One of the hardest people to pronounce in the Bible. That's the main thing. In Spanish, we call him Abacuc. So you can think of that as we um, speak this morning. But we explored this idea of biblical lament, right? We were challenged to honestly look at the problems in our, word and, in our world and have words with God. Say, God, why? Um, and we were challenged to kind of stop there. And just ask, and, and ask God, and ask the world, and look at things, and not conform for easy answers, right? And I'm confident that this week, that has weighed on some of your hearts. I've heard some stories, I've heard some people say, man, it's been hard to work through these things. Um, so what do we do next? Before I get to that, let's remember who Habakkuk is, right? He was a prophet from the 7th century BC, um, and he happened to live right before a terrible, terrible thing happened. Before this empire, this Babylonian empire, entered Jerusalem, destroyed it, destroyed the temple, destroyed everything, and exiled the people of God. And as he's seen this happen, he's seen this about to unfold, um, he goes to God and says, God, why, why, why are you doing this? And God says, no, I, I actually am, I'm using the Babylonians to, to invade your country. And he's like, why the Babylonians? This is an evil empire. These are bad people. Why are you doing this? He has pretty harsh words for God. We saw this last week. You, God, who are too pure to see evil, you're letting all this evil happen? And then he described the horrible realities of Babylon. Remember this? There are people that, that could care less about who they're conquering. They, they take empires and they just raise through them. They like sand in the sea, it said. Um, they kill people and animals for no good reason except to show that they could. They took away more than they needed. They exiled people's purposely divided families and people groups so that they wouldn't rebel. This is the Babylonian people. And God says, I'm using them. Um, so Habakkuk responds, and this is where we left it last week, right? He says, why, God? Why are you doing this? This doesn't make sense. And here's the thing. At the beginning of the chapter, we see that Habakkuk expects God to answer, doesn't he? He doesn't just say, it's not just kind of a show of, oh, why, God? And then he goes on and does his stuff. He, he waits. He stops and he waits. And he's expecting God to answer. Now, for a lot of us, we're going to have to, well, every, every one of us is going to have to confront this question at one point in our life. Why does evil happen? Why, if there's supposed to be a good God, does bad stuff happen? And for some of us, this is an excuse to stop believing in God, isn't it? Maybe not an excuse. It's a legitimate way of saying, I cannot believe in God. And I understand. Say, there's a good God and all this bad stuff happens. Why? For others of us, it's kind of the other way around. We say, there's evil in this world. There's a good God. I'm going to help God, right? This is the American way too, isn't it, sometimes, right? Like, we'll, get it, we'll solve it. We'll set up a business and it'll all be fine. Um, 
And maybe I'm exaggerating, but maybe not. Um, right? It leads us to action. But here's the thing. In the verse that we're looking at this morning, God does answer Habakkuk. But his an- and his answer is also intended for us, right? And, we'll, and we'll, we'll see this. But here's what he says. He doesn't say, yeah, I don't really care about you, so just get on with your life. He doesn't say, yes, I'm going to give you a few instructions of what to do. What does he say? He says, Habakkuk, wait. Just wait. Wait on me. And this is what the passage says to us as well. Wait on the Lord alone. Wait on the Lord alone. In the face of evil, wait on the Lord alone. And on the surface, especially after this week of just considering this stuff, this answer is not satisfying, is it? Um, especially if you're looking out and an empire is invading your land. How could God say to me, wait on me? No one likes waiting. It's hard. It's painful. It's debilitating. And it takes away our personal power for resolution, right? This is almost a capital sin in this country to take away our power to get stuff done. Um, you know, right? This is the land of pioneering, of fix-it-yourself videos, of Pinterest, right? I'm sorry. I had to, I had to throw that one in. Um, and of entrepreneurs, right? This is... But God commands us, and I think this is especially hard for us, but it's especially relevant for us today. God says, wait, wait on me. Um, So let's look at this text, and we're going to divide it to see three reasons to wait on the Lord alone. God gives Habakkuk three reasons, three kind of ideas. This is why you can wait on me. Um, And for those honest enough to look at evil in the eye, these reasons for waiting on the Lord are vital. They're vital for us. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Habakkuk. Um, If you have one of the guest Bibles, you're in luck because I have the page number. It's page 509. Um, If you don't know where Habakkuk is in your Bible, look at the index because it's a really small book stuck in the middle of another bunch of books. But let's look at Habakkuk chapter 2. And we'll look at the first reason. The first reason to wait jumps out at us immediately. It says, wait on the Lord because he's moving. God tells us to wait because he's moving. We may think he's slow, but he is moving, he is working in his perfect timing. So we see this almost immediately, don't we? We see chapter two, verse one, Habakkuk is standing at the watch post. He's waiting for God and the Lord answers him, right? He answers him in verses two to three. And what does he say? He gives two commands. Let's read this together. Verses two and three. He says, first, write the vision. Write this vision. That's the first command. Make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, and here's the second command, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Two commands, write the vision and wait for it. In other words, God's telling Habakkuk two things. First, there is an end. There is a vision. There's something that's coming. Um, You can run with this. You can take this. You can proclaim it. There's something that's coming. I am moving. And then second, he says, but wait for it. It's not coming in your time. It's coming in my time. You see that here? It says, it may seem delayed to you, but it's not delayed. It's coming at right, the perfect time. You see, in the face of huge contemporary problems, where Habakkuk's saying, Lord, look at what's happening around me. God doesn't give him a contemporary answer, does he? He says, it's bigger than this. It's bigger than you. Something is coming. Um, One way someone put it the other day, I was listening to something, he said, you see, God doesn't just care about a few people. He cares about the entire world. He cares about everyone. He's redeeming. He's reconciling the world to himself. That's what it says in Corinthians, right? The entire world to himself, he's embracing it. So sometimes we have to wait for God to do his purposes. His purposes are bigger than our contemporary problems. In an image, it's almost like God is holding the clock, right? 
I don't know. I tried to figure out what this means in American football analogies, and I don't know. But in, in soccer, which is the real sport here, um, I'm just kidding. But in soccer, the ref actually does hold the clock, and he gets to say how much time is put on at the end of the games. I don't, you may not know this, but this is a very important thing, and it can change the entire nature of a game because you may get five extra minutes at the end, and that team that was struggling to win, and we all know they should have won, sometimes will score at the end, and the game will completely change. Um, that's not the most accurate, accurate illustration, but in a way it is, right? God holds the clock. God's saying, my minutes are the ones that matter. It doesn't matter what's happening now. My minutes matter. It's coming to an end. Just wait. And so we ask, okay, God. Okay, God, your vision's coming. We'll wait. What is that vision? Well, let's look at verse four. This is the vision. This is kind of the big idea um, that God puts before Habakkuk, the thing that he can run with. He says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him but the unrighteous shall live by his faith. <laughs> I can almost imagine talking like, what kind of vision is that, right? Like, I wanted a picture. I wanted something. But God's doing something really important with this. He's comparing two, ty- two types of people. This is the vision that he's giving to Habakkuk. Um, so who are these two people? Well, the first is Babylon. And this is the first part of the verse. He says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him. And this is the great and terrible empire. And God's saying, this This is what the empire looks like. This is what people that live with this empire logic will look like. Um, And it answers Habakkuk's question, doesn't it? How can you use an empire like this? He's saying, well, this is how the empire is going to end. Don't worry. Um, So let's just look at this briefly. It says his soul, and and this word for soul in Hebrew is kind of like life or or essence. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's a special kind of soul. This is his whole life, his essence, what he is. It's it's either puffed up or bloated. Another way of translating it is saying is actually dwindling which is kind of weird, but basically it kind of means it's dying. This soul isn't going to last. Um, it's falling apart. And in case we don't get that right, the next line says it. It's not upright within him. Or another way of translating it, it almost says it's crooked towards himself. So there's almost this image. Martin Luther will speak of this as being bent into ourselves. That's the image of this soul. It survives by itself, by himself. He's, he's trying to get life from himself. And what happens when you try to get life from the same being and not from something outside, it, it dies, right? You can't survive with a self-contained system. So that's the first picture. It's a soul, a being bent inwards, living for itself, and it's dying. The soul that is trying to make it on its own, and it's heading in the wrong direction. Here's the vision from God. You don't want to be that guy, right? But then he shows the second person, the righteous one, right? And it says, but the righteous, he shall live by his faith. So here, rather than dwindling away, dwindling away, the person is made alive, right? He lives. That's the important verb. It's not in the first part. In the second part, it says this righteous one lives. How? By looking at himself, by feeding himself? No, by faithfulness or by faith. He lives by faith. That's what makes righteousness. That's a well-ordered soul. And, and by the way, this is the definition of both faith and faithfulness. Some of your Bibles will say faithfulness. Some will say faith. Some people like to have a big debate about which one it is. But if you think about it, biblical faith is never just a belief in something, right? Biblical faith um, is living in a way consistent with what we believe will come. Let me repeat that. Biblical faith is living in a way now consistent with what we believe will come. That's what faithfulness is, right? You have faith in something that will come that you can't quite see, so you live out today as if that's real. That's faithfulness. That's faith. It's the same thing. And and in biblical um, language, they don't have this division of like, well, I believe in God, but I don't really live it out. Like, well, do you really believe in God? Like, 
that, that's, that's kind of what they would say. In both, in both Testaments, so this is important um, just for us to, to remember and uh, land us. So let me just summarize that. These two images, this is the vision. This is what I want us to hold in mind. First, the crooked soul that depends on oneself is bloating or dwindling out of existence. But second, there's the righteous, the well-ordered soul, and it's living and flourishing because it is faith-driven. It's making decisions now in light of what is to come. This is the vision God gives to Habakkuk. He says, wait, because this is the results. This is what's going to happen. I am moving. I am doing. And this vision is fundamental to Christian belief. It always has been. And in fact, it kind of defines our belief, doesn't it? Christian belief kind of is about first trusting that God is moving, that he's doing something, that our timing doesn't match him, but God is moving. And second, it's about our life. It changes today because we believe that. So this is what waiting is like. And I wanted to define this up front. When we talk about waiting, it's not just sitting there. It's actually living differently because we know something is coming. It's living now in light of what we cannot fully see. Wait on the Lord because he's moving. Um, and some of you may be saying, okay, that sounds nice, but really, do you have to, like, is that, is that all Christians have to go with? Well, no, let's go to the second reason. Um, we'll see this in verses four to 19 where this vision is kind of fleshed out. And God sa- God's saying, wait on the Lord because nothing else will work. Wait on the Lord because nothing else will work. God is moving and nothing else will work. You see, God doesn't stop with an abstract comparison. Rather, he describes the reality of the way things work to show the real consequences of living like Babylon, of living according to what some people call empire logic. And he shows that this way of living simply doesn't deliver. deliver. It doesn't work. Now, I just threw out a big word there, empire logic. It's a, I love that word. It sounds really cool. Um, when I told it to Martha yesterday, she started going, turn, 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 turn. Um, <laughs> And I said, yeah, I guess, I guess that kind of summarizes it. Um, but what do we mean by empire logic, and why am I throwing this big, heavy word out? Well, um, one, way to, one way to describe empire logic, this is the logic that humans use to build empires, duh, right? Of power and wealth that keep people and entire nations controlled. So this is basically the logic be- be behind these power structures that we end up building that try to control people and cr- try to control things for our own good. This is empire logic, and in, in, in this chapter, Habakkuk kind of throws out three main areas of empire logic and shows how they don't work. Um, and as we look at this, I want to challenge us because it's really easy to say, oh, those Babylonians, they were just so terrible, right? Or th- those Egyptians, yeah, they were so bad. Um, you know, or the Romans that came later. What, I mean, what terrible people. They did so much evil. And of course, for Americans, we say, oh, and those Russians, oh my Oh my goodness, the Russians, right? The Soviet Russians, those were the real bad guys. They were terrible. But you guys know where I'm going. I want us to listen carefully to to these verses. I want us to think deeply because no one is free from empire logic. This is the way our world works. This is what a bent-in soul tends towards. And we happen to live in one of the most powerful, in the most powerful country, probably still. I don't know how many years we have left. But in a powerful country where this often invades our way of living. And I'm not, I'm not trying to bash the U.S. I'd love to, but that's for another day. Um, I'm not trying to bash any other country either, but I want us to honestly sit with ourselves and think, as we look at these things, think, are, how are we a part of this? How have we benefited from some of this empire logic that is eventually going to end up destroyed by God's justice? 
how are we part of this? So I just want us to be really honest. I want to throw that out, and we're going to look at these three things. Um, now, I, now you're seeing why this message isn't that easy. So let's look at three, and, and we'll go fairly quickly through this, but I want us to look at three principles of empire logic that Habakkuk throws out. So the first, greed for ever-increasing wealth. Greed for ever-increasing wealth, or greedy wealth. And we see this in verses 5 to 10. Let's look at verse 5, for example. It says, moreover, wine, or some translations will say wealth. It's, it's basically the same thing in, in this version. Wine or wealth is a traitor. An arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Sheol's like this dark, vast place where the dead live. He says, like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Now, this is the principle of all empires, isn't it? It's this greed. It's wanting more and wanting more and wanting to conquer more and having to conquer these people because if they get out of line, these people get out of line, so I have to hold them and I have to hold these guys. And it's not just with countries either, right? It's with money as well. It's with corporations. It's with, there's this logic of we have to get more and more and more. And it's a good thing. Wealth isn't necessarily a bad thing. It can be a really bad thing and tends to be a bad thing, but it's not always a bad thing. It's good to flourish, but it's wealth turned into an ultimate thing, isn't it? That's what greedy wealth is. That's one of these empire logics. But God points to the obvious, which we've also seen in history. Eventually, um, this greed turns on those in power and consumes them, doesn't it? The more you step on someone's head at some point when that person gets a chance, they're going to take over. Look at this in verse 6, how it puts it. It says, shall not all these, these are the nations that Babylon has conquered, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, so this is referring to Babylon, woe to him who heaps on what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Look at verse seven, will not your debtors, will not those that you're exacting taxes from now suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble, then you, Babylon, will be spoiled for them. This is the problem with empire logic. It doesn't hold out in the long run. It may hold out for a few generations. It may hold out for a legacy of a family, but at some point that greed is going to play, it's going to, it's going to um, how do you say this in English? It's, it's going to play on you. It's going to come back at you. Look at verse 10. It says, you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. This word for life is the same word as soul that we had in, chapter, in verse four. Your soul, your life, eventually forfeited. The empire logic of greed for wealth does not work, friends. Instead of depending on ever-increasing wealth, wait on the Lord. The second empire principle comes in verses 11 to 17. It's power by violence. This is another principle, fundamental need for empires to keep their power, isn't it? Look at verse 12. It tells us how empires are built. Read with me. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. And verse 15 fleshes this out. It's a hard one even to read publicly. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. This is powerful. And we're way too familiar with this idea, aren't we? Powerful people armed to the teeth, driving others from their land and homes, killing, raping, and murdering unnecessarily. We see this every day. This land we stand on, let's be honest here, This land we stand on, in fact, has a history of bloodshed and iniquity. Treaty after treaty was broken as we came to this land. 
we killed, or many people were killed, native people that God had placed on this land, and blood was shed, so much blood was shed that still we have a hard time even talking about it. And iniquity founded our cities and our wealth as a nation as we brought African men and women over to be slaves and stood on their backs to find our place in an international economy, this economy we're so proud of. Guys, it's not founded just on great pioneering. We have sin in our past. We can't get away from this empire logic. But all across the world, this continues to happen. This isn't just an American problem, is it? We see it on the news every single day. But here's the good news. God also sees it every single day. God sees those who are being trampled, pillaged, and exiled, and he has compassion on them. And he is moving, and he is turning the tables. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. It says, you, pointing to Babylon, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Uncircumcision in the Bible is, is basically a term of non-faithfulness to God, non-connection with God's people. Show your uncircumcision. The cup, this is the cup of wrath, the cup of destruction. The cup is in the Lord's right hand and it will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. Verse 17, the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence of the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. In other words, all this destruction that you've done it's coming back around. God is working his justice in our world as we speak. And there's a message of even more hope here. God is bringing something that no empire could ever bring, that no revolution could ever cause. Look at verse 14. It says, for the earth will be filled not with blood, not with iniquity, but it will be filled with what? With the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. More than blood that fills the streets, more than terror that covers the land, one day the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the entire earth like water covers the sea. This, friends, is a promise for us. And the question comes up, isn't it? We're thinking it. On what side will I be on? Where will we be when his glory fills the earth? Will we ride on the waves? Or will we drown in the water of the knowledge of the glory of God? Will we be operating with empire principles, using our power and our wealth to build up our own kingdom and turn away those who have less? Or will we be humbly waiting on the, on the Lord for his justice to come? Will we be trying to justify ourselves for what our forefathers have done and we benefit from? Or will we be waiting on the Lord for his justification, lamenting with those who have been oppressed and excluded, crying out, Lord, how long? Lord, how long? We get to the third empire principle or the third empire logic. This is in verses 18 to 19, and here it hits all of us. It's man-made idols. You're like, well, what does that mean? Well, here's the first thing about this part. This message isn't just aimed at the powerful and at those who have wealth. It doesn't somehow exclude the poor and the vulnerable, like, well, they'll be okay because they don't depend on empire logic. And this is important. What God's, God is not saying hey, the rich are all going to go to hell and all the poor are going to be great. He's not saying that. He is saying, hey, you wealthy rich people, you need to watch out because you have a lot of power in your hands and I'm using that and if you get screwed up with this, it's going to really hurt you. If you, get, if you mess with it. But he's talking to everyone here and he's saying, but all of us depend on idols, on man-made idols. And in the Bible, idols are the representations of anything that promise you to be like God and to live forever. 
These are good things that we make ultimate, things that we cannot live without, that we fully believe will save us and make us happy if we just get enough of them. Does this sound familiar? Here God points to relationships, right? If I just found the right husband, if I just found the right wife, everything would be okay. It points to our economic level. Man, if I just made a couple more thousand a year, I'd be okay. I could survive. God, just give me that and we'll be good. Right? It points to that family that means everything to you. The flag we swear by or the education we have. These are things we depend on to give us happiness, protection, to make us safe. But here God mocks those things. He calls them teachers of lies. You see that in verse um, 18. It says, what prophet is an idol when its maker shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. See, you built these things. How in the world are you going to depend on them for life? It's the same image. If you're trying to get life from yourself, how is that going to work? How in the world are they going to give you life? God says, no, you need life that comes from someone bigger than you, someone beyond you, someone better than you, someone that's more than just you. You can't get life from a dead tree or from a rock. You can't get life from an ideology or even from a religious practice. Only the Lord can give us life. Wait on the Lord because nothing else works. And you see, actually, sorry. What's, what's wonderful about this belief, about believing in God and realizing that nothing else works, isn't that as Christians we kind of become submissive, like, oh, because nothing else works, then we'll just kind of sit here. Actually, it kind of has the opposite effect. You see, when Christians know that God's justice is being worked out in this world as we speak, even though, even through evil and imperfect institutions, when we know that, rather than becoming conformists who adapt to whatever empire is above us, it actually makes us people who relentlessly resist and combat evils that come from empire principles. See, the, this resistance is incredibly powerful too because we don't have to depend on our empire logic. Think, for example, of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He led the civil rights movement that brought a whole powerful country, this country, to realize that this Jim Crow system was evil, it was wrong, and to change the system, or to try to change the system. So this belief of God's justice being active was actually one of the guiding principles that gave strength and clarity to nonviolent protesters. Let me just read something from him. He says, our method of nonviolence is based on the conviction that the universe, or God, is on the side of justice. It is this deep faith in the future that causes the nonviolent resistor to accept suffering without retaliation. He knows that in his struggle for justice, he has cosmic companionship. In other words, our Christian hope in God's ultimate justice is what enables Christians to stand for God's justice here and even suffer and die for it. And the best part of this all is that's where life is. So it's not just about suffering like, oh, we'll suffer here and then be better. No, actually we're saying, no, there's life in standing for God now. There's life. It's better to suffer and stand for God than it is to be rich and wealthy and not stand for God's principles. It will turn around. It won't work. There is life in waiting in God. This is where the iPad fails. All right, I got it. This is heavy, and I know this is heavy, but let's, let's bring it around. There's the third um, principle, the third reason to wait on the Lord, and we find this in verse 20. Wait on the Lord because he will have the final word. In the end, God's word will be the only word left. Everything else will fall silent. We see this, don't we, in verse 20. In opposition to the idols and man-made things that speak lies and these violent empires and all these powers, what does it say? Let's read it. 
says, but the Lord, he is in his temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. All the earth falls silent before the Lord when he sits in his temple. This is the reason, this is the final reason, the most important reason we wait for the Lord because he rules over all the earth. Everything falls silent before him. And you see, this wasn't just an empty promise. It wasn't an empty promise for Habakkuk. Um, His temple was destroyed at some point, but Habakkuk remembers. He says, you know, God did come that one time in the Exodus. Remember? Remember in the Exodus when he released us? And we'll see this next week. For us, what do we get to look to? We get to look to Christ. Because Christ came, the, the, the temple, the Babylonian, or the Jerusalem temple was raised, it was destroyed. But at one point, God came again in Christ. And in John, it says he tabernacled with us, or he templed with us. Christ was his temple, and he sat in his place, and everything fell silent. I mean, think about this. Think how contrary Jesus was to this empire logic. Rather than coming as an emperor, he came as a servant. Rather than conquering by force to build his own kingdom, Christ conquered by giving his life for God's kingdom. Rather than keeping riches for himself, he gave himself to us to be our inheritance. Rather than submitting to silent idols, he freed us from all idolatry. He lived the life of faithfulness that we could never live. And he died the death that we deserved for our allegiance to an empire in direct opposition to God. God inhabited his temple in Christ and the world fell silent. The world fell silent. And this is vital to our Christian waiting. The first thing we do when we wait is to fall silent before God and say, all my images, all my ideas of God, all my ideas of power, all the things I wanted to achieve are nothing in comparison with the real God that came and dwelt among us. That's the first step. We fall silent. We confess our inability to save ourselves. We confess our inability to change the world around us. That doesn't mean we stop trying to change it. It means we confess our inability and we look to God. See, when we stand before Christ, the problem of evil is no longer a philosophical one. It's personal and I need forgiveness, isn't it? And this is why waiting is so important because there's nothing that we can do to justify ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. In fact, in in Romans, when Paul is explaining the gospel, he actually starts with this verse in Habakkuk 2, 4. He says, "This, this is actually the explanation of this verse. The righteous will live by faith. He says, faith in Christ is where that righteousness is because he has been made available to us. Let me read for you Romans 5, 1 to 6. Which, and, and then we'll sum this up. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. See that hope of the knowledge of the glory of God? It's here. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts while the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And here's the key verse. For while we were still weak, at the right time, God died for the ungodly. You see this? Remember the vision that we talked about? A time is coming. The right time will come. Just wait for it. And at the right time, Christ came and died for the ungodly. He came and brought justice. He came and sat on his throne and said, that's it. It's over. I'm the Lord. Look to me. So how do we do this? How do we wait? And I know this has been heavy. I know it's been a little long, but I wanted to get this out. How do we wait? 
And let me propose just three quick things, three ways to wait on the Lord, to hold on to this word. First, or, or before this, as we confess our inability to do things, um, trust in Christ. And how do we trust in Christ? Sorry. Um, let me suggest three ways. As we, as we confess our inability and trust in Christ, there's three things that we can do. First, entrust your answers to him. God's not afraid of our questions. We heard this last week. He's not afraid of our lament or our cries or even our accusations against God. He's not afraid. He can take it. As Gabe said, God's pretty emotionally stable. He can, he can deal with you. Um, but also trust him for your answers. As you look at your surroundings and you don't understand, entrust your answers to him. As you ask, entrust your answers to him. He's moving. He's just. He's here. And this also concerns others, right? When you sit with a person who's in a worse situation, when you sit with someone that you can't understand, you can actually listen now. You can really listen to people. Um, You don't have to justify their circumstances anymore. Say, well, it's okay. Something good. You can listen and sit and cry and lament with them. You can sing with them, brother, won't you help me pray as I get through this unfriendly world? Because you know God has the answer and God's working justice. Wait on him to be the answer, even when you can't see it. And don't let anything else be the final answer. Neither a political party or a certain kind of theology or other idolatries, they will fail you. So first, entrust your answers to him. Second, entrust your circumstances to him. God is concerned about global problems because he's concerned about you. He's concerned about people, about individuals. God cares for you. Trust him and trust your life for him. Suffering will inevitably be part of your life, whether you trust in God or not, to be real honest. God will not spare you from suffering either. But if you put your eyes on Christ, you will endure. And when you forget this, when it feels like God doesn't care about you, think of Christ. Think of the cross. Think of how he came to be with us. He became like us. And thirdly, entrust your reputation to him. So what does this mean? It means that you can stand for what is right, even when it costs you your name. You see, Christians that wait aren't passive. Rather, like Habakkuk, they can look around with crystal clarity at the problems in the world and cry out, that's not right. God loves these people. And even if it makes no sense to cry out, even if you don't have a solution, we can still cry out for justice and say, God wants something better than that. We know that much. And you know what's going to happen when you do this? Both sides are going to hate you. <laughs> right? When you actually call out for God's justice, no one's going to like you because empire logic dominates both sides of any question because they want the power. But you can entrust your reputation to him because he is working and he is doing. He will have the final word and it will not put you to shame. Church, it's not easy to live with your eyes open to evil. It's not always easy to live against the current of our age, but it is so much better to wait in the Lord than to wait on alternatives. Living faithfully by putting our trust in Christ is how we were ultimately designed to live. So today, I plead with you, wait on the Lord because he will have the final word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for your word. We thank you because you are not afraid of calling things out. And we ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes to these... um, empire logic principles that sometimes creep into our lives, that creep into our governments, that creep into everything that's around us. Lord, free us from the bondage of the idolatries in this world and help us wait on you. Fix our eyes upon you. 
Lord, so that we can endure this world and so that we can cry out for justice. We pray, Lord, that you would help us today to remember what you have done and that that would be our strength. In your name, amen.